Welcome, beautiful mama and blossoming baby bump. This is your host, Chrissy Long from Blissful Birthing, helping to transform the world one blissful birth at a time. And today's guest is Justine Leach from Resilient Birth. Welcome, Justine. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So excited to have you here. I kind of met Justine about a year and a half ago on a Mind Valley course called Speak and Inspire, which was amazing. And yeah, I learned very quickly that Justine works in the same kind of space as I do around birth, but um, at kind of the other spectrum. So yeah, Justine works more um, with ladies that have had trauma or have been survivors in some kind of physical, yeah, horrible situation and helps them navigate um, pregnancy and childbirth and motherhood. Um, whereas yeah, my, my angle was more like preventing anything traumatic from happening. Um, but obviously you can't do that every time. That's just not possible. And you don't know what set of um, situations women are coming into their pregnancy experience and their birth experience. So I think the two really complement one another. And I'm really excited to have met Justine because I will definitely, definitely, if that's okay with you, be putting your information up on my course for ladies because there is a huge part of my course at the beginning that deals with healing any traumas they may have Mm. and obviously that's not my my area of expertise so I think if they want to delve into it deeper then they need to come to Mm -hmm. you first um, in order to have a blissful birth experience because without healing Mm. I don't think it's possible I just Mm -hmm. uh, especially now that I've been listening to um Justine's amazing online five-day course that she did on a Facebook group and it's been so insightful and so packed full of information that yeah it would be doing a disservice to women if I didn't refer them to you if they have had trauma. <laughs> okay well, thank you. Maybe lots of women coming to you um, but Justine if we could Well, just firstly start with um, you briefly introducing yourself and how Resilient Birth was conceived, really, so that the listener can get a better understanding. Sure. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Chrissy, and I'm I'm excited and honoured to be coming on your podcast today. Uh, My name is, as you said, Justine Leach, and I am a childbirth educator, uh, and I specialise in working with people prenatally Uh, who have a history of trauma, helping them to plan for a safe and supported childbirth experience. My background is actually in academia. So I started out my sort of adult life, my adult career, thinking I was going to become a professor. And um, that was the the path that I was following. Uh, But when I had my children, I was finishing up my PhD And it really impacted me, my experiences of both my birth. My first birth was a a traumatic birth experience. And my second was a very healing birth experience. And I kind of realized that I had a voice that needed to be out there in the public and not in the ivory tower. And uh, my PhD was on representations of sexual consent and narratives of sexual violence and rape. And so I had this background uh, researching and studying trauma and decided that I was going to move into this birth world to help people with histories of trauma, as well as train providers, doulas, 
midwives, labor and delivery nurses, and others in supporting survivors giving birth, trauma-informed care. And so that's one of my main focuses now is actually uh, on the training side of things as well as supporting parents. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Yeah, because I think so many caregivers haven't given us a second thought most of the mm-hmm. time. The work mm-hmm. amazing. Right. And like when, you know, one of the things that's really important to, to recognize is whether you have trauma from your past or whether, you know, you're hoping to avoid trauma in, in the future, that those caregivers have such a huge impact. And so really choosing your care provider wisely, finding somebody who you trust, going, if you're going to birth in a hospital, then, then finding the culture of that space. If you're birthing in a birth center, what's the culture of that space? If you're having a home birth, who are you bringing into your home? These, these things make a huge difference to your experience. Absolutely. So could you classify for us what trauma actually is when you say traumatic birth? Because I learned a lot around that. I used to think that trauma was the actual event itself, that something awful happened. But I've since learned through doing your online free course um, that is actually how you were made to feel, not necessarily the event itself, that you were made to feel out of control, not respected, no voice, um, and that it's a very personal, subjective experience. Right. So could you talk a bit more about around that so that um, the women listening understand what you mean by if you've been a victim of trauma before and a survivor and all the right. classifications that could mean? You know, it can, it's so wide-ranging, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we often think that uh, trauma has to be some kind of big event that has been categorized by somebody else out there as something that would count as traumatic. So when we think about that, we think about um, sexual violence, uh, childhood sexual abuse, something something along those lines. Um, but in actual fact, trauma isn't in the event, right? It's it's not the event itself. It's the subjective experience that went on inside of a person mm-hmm. at the time that something happened that was overwhelming, frightening, felt uh, life-threatening. Um, and so when we look at that subjective experience, what is going on inside of the body when something is happening? And, and we can see that this is, uh, this is where we kind of should think about trauma as, as being located because two things, oh, one thing, sorry, one thing can happen to, to two different people, but somebody can walk away carrying trauma and the other person can walk away feeling fine. And so it's not in the event itself, it's in the experience of that event. Um, so what some of the things that happen during a traumatic event is uh, that the left side of the brain shuts down. That's the part of the brain that's responsible for processing, for understanding, for thinking clearly, uh, for language and speech. This part of the brain shuts down. And the other part of the brain, the right side of the brain is activated. That's a part of the brain that has uh, a sense of uh, our sense of touch and smell, sensory information, emotional experience is located there. And this makes a lot of sense, right? We have, um, if we're experiencing, say, a, a, a tiger jumping out at us, we need to respond very quickly. It makes sense that we have a heightened sense of our senses mm-hmm. rather than um, needing to spend a lot of time thinking about it, right? If we spend too much time thinking about this tiger, then maybe we won't react fast enough to save our life. 
Uh, those reactions might look like uh, fight or flight. So we fight the tiger, we, we, we flee from the tiger. Or if neither of those two things are available to us, then maybe we'll go into a freeze state or, or a, um, what's called a, a fawn or a submit place. Uh, and, and in those particular states, the freeze and fawn submit, that's where trauma is most deeply in, imprinted because we weren't able to do something to uh, transform the situation. If we are able to fight, then, then we have that kind of sense of self-efficacy. Likewise, if we're able to flee, we have that sense of self-efficacy. But with uh, the free state, that's where trauma is, is most strongly embedded. And so it's in this experience of, of freezing or in the experience of submitting in what's going on inside of the brain in the moment with that shutdown of the left side of the brain and activation of the right side of the brain, which changes the way in which our, our memories of this experience are recorded in the brain this is this is where trauma is and it's not really in any particular event uh something that we can that's the thing out there uh, and that means that we can experience trauma uh, from all kinds of things that aren't normally uh regarded as being traumatic and so people walk around with carrying trauma in their bodies without necessarily knowing why or feeling kind of guilty or feeling a lot of shame around why am I overreacting to this? Uh, because maybe what you have experienced isn't one of those big T trauma events. Uh, and so it can be hard to even recognize within ourselves, oh, what I'm experiencing right now is that trauma memory coming up because we don't even necessarily recognize as what has happened to us as something that would count as trauma. Yeah. Yeah, Western society can be quite harsh like that too, can't it? It's like, yeah, well, just get on with it. You're fine. Everything's fine. So those feelings of helplessness and overwhelm and not being heard or respected mm -hmm. at a certain point may not really be something that anyone else gives you time to express or heal from because it's... Right. And, and, you know, what counts as a traumatic event sort of when we, when we locate it in, in the event itself is it's socially constructed, right? It's so for a long time, uh, childbirth was considered to be something that couldn't count as a traumatic event. Like you couldn't get trauma from experiencing a, 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 a difficult childbirth experience. Um, and that was, that was the perception that was out there that because you have, you know, if you walk away with your baby, then it, that must be that must solve everything, and we just know that that's not true. That um, and so over the last ten to fifteen years, there's been this increasing recognition that childbirth can be a traumatic experience. People do um, uh, experience trauma from from that, particularly when they're receiving poor care and disrespectful care, coercive care, care that isn't. Um, uh, human-centered, isn't individualized, isn't honoring you as a person. And so, um, uh, so we're, over the, the last few years, there's been this cultural shift in recognition of birth trauma as a thing. But it just shows you that when we, when we think about uh, trauma in terms of events and not what's going on inside of the body when something is happening, we can actually like miss experiences of trauma and, and then not support 
support people who need the support because we just expect you to get over it. Aren't you grateful you have a healthy baby? Come on. Why are you still thinking about that birth? Why are you still talking about it? Just be grateful. And so people get all these kinds of messages that are really not helpful because we can be both grateful for our children and at the same time have experienced trauma. These are not two these are not mutually exclusive experiences. Absolutely. Now, I find a lot in the work that I do that I do get a lot of women that openly speak about how traumatized they have been mm-hmm. from another birth experience, or even if they haven't given birth, just they may have thought of it because the way society and the media and everything talks about birth is very traumatic. It just sounds barbaric, painful, awful. Um, I was terrified, absolutely terrified mm-hmm. before I had my first. Um, and I just thought, okay, we'll just C-section that. That's the only way, you know, I'm not going to be a martyr to pain. I'm not going to go through all of this. So I actually think people do speak about it a lot. But the bit that was missing for me was like, um, I thought it was the events as such that, I don't know, they ended up with um, a birth experience they didn't want. You know, maybe they wanted an after birth, but they ended up with a C-section or episiotomies or painful vaginal examinations against their will. Um, but as you say, more often than not, it's actually the way in which um, certain things were conducted by the care providers that actually caused the trauma. And that's quite a hopeful prognosis because it makes you realize that actually it's very avoidable then <laughs> if they're educated, which is your mission, you know, to teach care providers how to treat women with respect and dignity and to give them just that personal humanized approach by looking at them in their eyes and asking for their permission or consent or just explaining things when they want to do things and justifying why, it can make all the difference to an event being traumatic or not traumatic. Um, And what I found really interesting when I heard your story was that you said, to all intents and purposes, your first birth was a perfect, normal birth. It was what you wanted, you know, it was a vaginal Mm -hmm. birth and you didn't have any medical real interventions, you didn't have any drugs that you wanted, but you ended up feeling totally traumatized because no one was hearing what you were trying to say. Um, mm-hmm. And you touched on that, that if you've been traumatized, the voice and speech is one of the first things to go. So you found it difficult to articulate. Mm-hmm. Don't like the pressure you're putting on me and you couldn't quite form mm-hmm. these words. And mm-hmm. I totally agree with you when you're in the middle of labor, speech is definitely not. <laughs> point um my husband always thinks that I'm hours away from giving birth and I'm maybe two minutes away because I've gone so into myself Mm -hmm. I just cannot vocalize like oh I think we need that so you couldn't vocalize and you were feeling very isolated and not heard and not seen Mm -hmm. and not respected that I was like wow so there's so many women that on paper have had the ideal natural vaginal birth but they're still scarred from it and for me that was a real learning experience because I really promote natural birth vaginal Mm -hmm. birth no medication all of that preferably at home to avoid the caregiver's care because I I was so scared of that in particular the way I'd be treated Mm -hmm. and for me that has worked five times because I've really chosen who my care providers are and I very much keep to myself when I'm giving birth I'm very private Mm -hmm. don't want anyone touching me I've never had anyone do a vaginal examination on me or break my waters or touch me at all because I'm so like back off. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like, no one is coming near me. Um, but yeah, I just found what you said really, really interesting about your birth being normal, but actually 
Mm -hmm. very traumatic um so yeah if you could touch a little bit about that and the other thing that I thought was fascinating was that there are women in their pregnancies that are experiencing trauma because of their bodily changes Mm -hmm. and not being in control of it I've never thought of that angle before Mm because I've always been more like I embrace wow it's amazing it's magical but I haven't experienced trauma Mm -hmm. you know to that extent Mm -hmm. so to see it through another woman's eyes was like whoa course it can feel overwhelming then and of course she's more likely to experience depression after but and all that kind of thing when the baby mm-hmm. needs you and is needy and again your voice isn't being heard mm-hmm. baby you know so anyway sorry I'm rambling I just <laughs> it's really interesting to learn yeah. all that from a standpoint where I haven't been traumatized but there's so many mm-hmm. into the, the whole thing mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, to answer your first question, I experienced trauma from a birth that looked like a birth that I wanted. So I went into that experience wanting to have an unmedicated vaginal birth. And I came out of that experience with an unmedicated vaginal birth. Um, But the piece around that's really important for people to recognize is that that again, trauma is not in the event. It's not in what does this event look like from the outside. how is it being experienced from the inside? Uh, so for me, I found that my voice got lost. Uh, I would try to, to say something. I would try and shift some aspect of my care, and that wouldn't register. It, wouldn't, it wasn't understood. Um, I had a number of non-consensual things happen during that birth that, that affected me as a survivor. And, and so it's important to, to realize that, that we can experience trauma from, from births that look kind of normal. And we can also come away from births that are uh, very complicated, medically complicated, emergency cesarean, um, and, but nonetheless come away from that birth feeling like, you know what, I made really good decisions. I was really well supported. And yes, it was scary, but I don't carry trauma with me in my body from that experience. Um, And and so one of the things that I think is helpful to think about, what what is the distinction? What is is the difference between, say, a a normal birth that that is traumatic and a complicated birth, a scary birth that isn't experienced as traumatic? And, And the way I like to think about it is in terms of the three things that make a good birth. And if you have these three things, then you can have a good birth, even if it's scary. And if you're missing these things, you can have what looks like, you know, an ideal birth or or a birth that is um, low intervention. And uh, and it can um, end up feeling traumatizing. And so those three things are, are you feeling seen? That means, are you feeling understood? Are you feeling like uh, people are, are... registering and paying attention to you as an individual? Are you feeling heard? Does that mean that you have a voice, that people care about how you're feeling, that they're paying attention, they're asking you questions, they're checking in with you? You matter and your voice matters in your birth. And are you feeling in control of the decisions you're making about your care? Uh, And again, it's like, are you the one who's feeling in charge? Are you feeling in, in control? And so 
you can have a birth, you know, let's say you're, you're planning a home birth, you want to avoid hospital interventions, you have uh, picked out your midwifery team well, and for whatever reason, there's something going on with baby's heart rate, heart rate that means that it is prudent to transfer to the hospital. And at the hospital, again, stuff is going on, and it is prudent and makes sense to then move to a cesarean, right? So here we have a birth that goes in a direction that you don't want it to go, right? Like right now in your pregnancy, this is a, this is a, a route that you're like, I don't want that route. I don't want that path. Yeah. You can experience that and you can experience that as a good birth. You can have a good birth with that experience because you're feeling really well supported by that midwifery team and they're giving you excellent care. Mm -hmm. You're being included in the decisions that you're making and you feel really confident that, you know what, with the picture that we have, this is the right choice for us and our family. You can um, go to the hospital and receive really compassionate care. People paying attention to you as an individual, looking you in the eyes, understanding the disappointment and the grief that you're experiencing because this birth isn't turning out how you wanted it to turn out. Mm-hmm. And so you can have all those things. And yes, there may be some um, processing that you need to do afterwards. You may feel um, grief and disappointment. You may be wondering why this happened, but you don't have to carry trauma around it. You don't have to continue uh, through your life feeling like that was a traumatic experience. And and so this, as you said, it, it makes you kind of hopeful, right? Because what it means is that we can prevent trauma from happening through the ways in which uh, individuals are cared for, birth givers are cared for uh, during their journey. It, it's something that we can change. We can't always decide like ahead of time, you know, okay, like I'm just not going to be the person who gets preeclampsia, right? Mm -hmm. Like it it happens, right? These things happen. And I, you know, I'm just not going to be the person who has a preterm birth. Well, we can't always control these things, but as people who support birth givers, we can really make a huge impact in uh, preventing trauma. And so these experiences, as frightening as they can be, don't have to be experienced as in isolation, uh, in confusion, in feeling like nobody's listening, experienced as, um, uh, as that alone space, right? Trauma is experienced in that alone place. It's a very uh, lonely experience. And so any time that we're receiving care that... Uh, disrupts that aloneness we have an opportunity to help prevent trauma and it seems so obvious doesn't it like if any of my children hurt themselves or they're in a situation where they're you know freaking out the first thing you do is hug them and reassure them and just Mm -hmm. hold the space right Mm -hmm. sometimes they're just in shock rather than actually hurt and they just need that time Mm -hmm. so why on earth have we lost that humanity in a caregiving place you know people are trained you would think initially to help people and they kind of lost their way almost with the protocols and the systems Mm -hmm. and their own graphs and things they have to follow. And they kind of 
often lose sight of this is a human being we're dealing with, with feelings and the most basic fundamental thing mm-hmm. to have that connection and treat them with respect rather than, I don't know, just looking at the monitors and discussing their care between themselves and not even acknowledging you. Or I mean, mm-hmm. I just can't believe the outrageousness that people would even do a vaginal examination on a woman without asking permission. It's just like, excuse mm-hmm. me? Like, when do you right. go from touching someone's body normally in such an intimate place as a stranger? And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to me, that was like, whoa, I would have probably karate chopped them off. But I think it's... <laughs> probably because I worked in hospitals for seven years before and I saw a lot of the behaviors that went on. And that's again, why I was like, no, no, no. You know, I don't even mm-hmm. want to go in that space to have the arguments while I'm at my most vulnerable. Because um, mm-hmm. I knew I'm, I probably won't have the voice or the stamina to handle that because it mm-hmm. is like, if they're not, um, like you're saying, those kind of care providers, you just feel like they're the dominant ones. You know, you're on their turf, you're mm-hmm. on their territory. And um, even if you go with a doula, how big is her voice really going to be? They can kick her out. They can disregard her. So I mm-hmm. think that's the bit that's challenging, even though there's hope because it's so easy to change this narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, it's, it takes some special people to be open-minded enough and not have this God complex or we're in charge and you will do as we say. Mm-hmm. it actually really changed it's kind of it feels a bit like it's luck of the draw mm-hmm. when you go into their establishment am I going to get kind people today mm-hmm. or am I going to get not so kind I mean I had my first in hospital by surprise mm-hmm. thankfully in England where they're very you know very respectful of your autonomy and everything but I do remember that one of my midwives she left as I was nearly about to give birth because she was on shift and it was really a big thing because I really liked her Mm-hmm. the next one that came on I really didn't like and I was like mm-hmm. oh my gosh this is really changing the whole experience for me right. <laughs> um so that's the bit that I still feel a bit like you know how how can we get control in a situation that isn't really our domain obviously mm-hmm. you're a doula and your partner and yeah. them and saying you need to be my voice because I probably won't yeah. have one but what other tips do you have if they're really being very um, kind of bullying in their way because I'm, I live in Costa Rica and mm-hmm. it's a really terrible place to give birth. Like from what I've heard, mm-hmm. the stories, women are tied to their beds. They're told they can't drink or eat. They can't use the toilet. You can't mm-hmm. make a noise. Um, birth is God's way of punishing you for having sex. You dirty little so-and-so because a lot of girls here have babies at 15, 16. So they kind of enjoy them suffering um and there's no privacy they're kind of five or six of them together screaming and it just sounds awful mm-hmm. um, so how would you try and gain some control in that situation to not come out traumatized well I mean I think I mean there's a lot in what you just shared yeah. uh, so a couple of thoughts come up for me so the first one is uh recognizing like when you asked uh like why do people act this way why is it not why is why are they just you know feeling okay to do these things uh I want to recognize that that a lot of the um the staff in in hospitals are carrying themselves a lot of trauma uh and so that there's trauma and burnout associated with the job with uh, uh the, the work that they're doing and there is a real lack of support 
from the administration uh, in actually helping the staff process understand so what has happened. So, for example, uh, a lack of support if they have uh, if the um, labor and delivery nurse team has uh, recently supported someone through a loss. And then they're having to move into a different space and into another kind of birth. And so how like there's not very many. Um, so not only is there not trainings in, in sort of trauma-informed care, and so that's something that I'm trying to change, there's also, so there's a lack of training and education. In addition to that, there is a, a, a lack of support. And what that means is that when people are feeling a lack of support and when they're experiencing a burnout, then the only way to keep going, or one of the, one of the ways to keep going and keep doing your job and keep showing up is, is to close down the heart space, mm-hmm. right? is to protect oneself against that, that experience of um, the, the challenges both the the personal challenges, the work environment challenges, and the challenges that birth givers are experiencing within the system. And so one of the the things that happens is that people close down that that heart space uh, and and lock up their empathy in order to protect themselves from uh, the experiences that they are having in uh, through their job. And so I would say like, you know, I have a lot of compassion. For, uh, for people who are really, you know, working in extremely difficult situations, who are lacking the support, who have a lot of pressures, pressures from the hospital, from administration, um, often particularly labor and delivery nurses have uh, a real lack of power within the system that, that uh, is very exhausting. Uh, so that's one thought that, that I have. But to answer your second question, which is has to do with okay, well, what then does the birth giver do uh, in knowing that, that people are experiencing burnout, that not all of the care is respectful, not everyone has trained as a trauma-informed provider, uh, what, what do I do right, as, as a, a, an individual? So something that I, I help my clients with is, is create what I call a birth support plan. And uh, it's a little bit different from a traditional birth plan because the focus is less on what uh, can, like, what do I want for my birth? So let's imagine, you know, I want to have an unmedicated birth experience. I don't want an epidural. I want to avoid Pitocin, right? So these are the, the wants and don't wants of your birth, right? And I think that this is how birth plans have traditionally been thought about. What I help my clients create is what I call a birth support plan, which is not about the what, it's about the how. How do I want to be supported in my birth? Mm-hmm. So that might look like I don't, I'm planning an unmedicated birth. I don't want to have an epidural. But we have a section in there saying, if I decide to get an epidural, then these are the three things you can do to help me. If I decide to, or if it is necessary for me to to have a cesarean, these are the three things that will help me. If uh, if you notice that I go quiet, that might mean that I'm not okay. Mm -hmm. And it would be helpful if you would check in with me in that moment. 
to see if I'm all right. And I find it useful when people give me eye contact and bring me a glass of water. Mm -hmm. So we spell out these things, right? Like, how do you want to be supported? Mm -hmm. What does it look like in your body when you're not okay? What would somebody recognize? And how would you like them to respond? How would you like your partner to respond? How would you like, if you have a doula, how would you like them to respond? How would you like your labor and delivery nurse to respond? What could they do in that moment if they recognize that you're not okay? And that goes into the plan. Mm -hmm. So um, when when we're sharing this kind of information, we are helping somebody. Like, it's like, oh, I could do that. I can give eye contact. We're not asking them, you know, I don't ever want Pitocin, right? Which is fine. Like it's a decision that you're allowed to make. It is your body. But there are certain circumstances, for example, with hemorrhaging, where it's a really good idea to get Pitocin Mm -hmm. uh, because it's going to help prevent a really bad hemorrhage. So you don't necessarily want to be like definitively no, never with certain things because there are circumstances in which this would be good medical care and it might save your life. Mm-hmm. So, but, you know, and so like when you say no, never to somebody like a, a labor and delivery nurse, if you, if you have a, a, a birth plan that says no Pitocin ever, their response is, I can't promise that. Yeah. There might be a situation in your birth where this is the, the good, this is a prudent thing to do and it might save your life. And so their response is already in a kind of resistance. It's like, oh, this doesn't feel like something I can give you. I know that you don't want it. That's okay, fine. Like I'll, I'll accept that, but I might still have to have a conversation a bit with you about yeah. changing your mind because... And it can cause kind of irritation in the care provider. And like you were saying on your course, they may think, oh my God, you know, this person's really controlling and it can kind of get their prickles up, you know, that you're being bloody awkward, um, which then kind of isn't very conducive for a non-debating. It just feels like you're really getting into a confrontational situation as the one that's giving birth to, like, no, I don't really want to talk about that we might have transportation because I don't want to. But as you said, it's the way it's, it's done. Well, firstly... The care provider, as you were saying on your course, gets really good insight if there is a plan like that. Mm-hmm. That the, the, the birth giver obviously feels the need for control by having a very controlled mm-hmm. birth plan like that. And mm-hmm. the, that's what she's really learning from looking at that. It's like this person needs to feel in control. And from that, she can really take, okay, or he, that's what I need to give them. So even though, you know, I might say I want to give potatoes and everything. It's the way in which I say it, the way in which I mm-hmm. get consent or the way I might explain something in a really yeah. rational, respectful way rather than like, well, we might have to and that's it. You know, so it's like, mm-hmm. oh, oh. Um, the way in which they deliver is like, I can see that you really don't want this and hopefully that's not going to happen, but there might be an instance and if that occurs, we'll explain it to you and we'll always ask for your consent and don't worry, nothing will be done to you without your total approval and it just sets the stage completely differently then where there's mutual respect then the birth givers like oh okay you do actually know what you're doing and you have a job to do you're not just doing it to me Mm -hmm. and also um yeah the caregiver has respect for the the birth giver but she just wants it to be delivered to her in a different way in a compassionate way 
she feels important. and it's like by by putting things into the plan that are that is less about what I want and what I don't want and mm. more about how do I want to be supported it actually it's it's much more practical mm. so right like if you're like I you know um I'm afraid of a I'm afraid of a um vaginal exams right I'm afraid of vaginal exams I want to limit how many I have uh, if a vaginal exam is necessary if I decide to consent to one here are the things that you can do right you can have a conversation ahead of it with me looking at me in the eyes you can um uh, you can talk me through it, right? Telling me where your hand is. You can ask for my consent to start, right? So you can ask whether I'm ready, right? These are the things that, that we can ask for. And, and when somebody reads that, then they're like, well, I can do that. Yeah. Like I can't promise that there'll be never a time when a vaginal exam doesn't make sense because there are times when vaginal exams uh, can give information that is important or helpful for your, um, your birth. And of course, again, it is your choice. You can decide not to, not to consent, but at the same time, there, there might be a time when you're like, okay, I don't want vaginal exams, but here's a situation in which this one does make sense. Right. So now I'm consenting. Like, is this hurting? Are you okay? You know, yeah. it's a completely different experience, isn't it? And then, but you've set out ahead of time, here mm-hmm. are some things that you could do to help me. And when we're setting out, like, here are the things you can do. It's like, these are like really practical things. Mm-hmm. It's not, and it's something that they can, they can actually give you, right? Like I can actually give you eye contact. Yeah. Right. I can't promise that, that you're not going to need Pitocin because there are some instances in which it would make, it makes sense, but I can always give you eye contact. Mm-hmm. So and you can always explain things nicely. And you can always explain things and you can um, ask for consent and you can, uh, you know, it, there's so many and everyone is so unique. People have different, different desires. Like I have clients who want to be talked through step-by-step step what's going on during a vaginal exam. I have other clients who want to be distracted and have the, yeah. the uh, labor and delivery nurse or their, their OB um, talk about the weather. Mm-hmm. They, they don't want to, they, they want something else, right? They, they yeah. want to be, have their mind taken off it. Yeah. So who knows, like, like, but like, if you put that into your plan, then they know what you want and what's going to be most helpful for you. Uh, and, and so by creating these, um, I, like I think of these birth support plans as, as tools of, of communication. That's all it is. It's a tool of communication. And, uh, and when we're communicating well with the team, then we are really reducing the chances of trauma. Yeah. And if we can do a bunch of that communication ahead of the birth, even better, because then we can set expectations. We can find out about hospital culture and hospital policies. We can see whether there's wiggle room on, on certain things, whether we're going to have to sort of face other things that maybe we don't like, but we can prepare for in, in other ways. Um, and so as much as possible, having these conversations ahead of time is useful. In addition to that, it might mean that you decide, you know, what this location isn't right for me. I'm going to switch to a different provider, a different hospital, a different birth location. I might choose a home birth, you know, so there's all kinds of thing, good things that happen when we're communicating 
with the team, particularly ahead of time. Um, the other thing I will say about birth support plans, and, and I think that this should go into every single plan. I think the thing that really annoys me and frustrates me about birth plans that I see online where people are asked to like download them and then they just like tick boxes or they kind of grab pictures and, and put them into the plan itself is um, very often there isn't a space for personalization. Mm-hmm. And the, the personalization is so key because one of the things that happens when you're interacting with a care provider who's maybe very shut down and uh, has closed off their heart space, right? And this is this is a risk now for, for experiencing trauma, mm-hmm. um, is like if we can open up that space again, if we can form a connection with this person, if we can uh, pull out some of their compassion and empathy for us, then we're going to receive better care. And we do that through becoming an individual, a a person, a human being, an individual uh, person with their own history and story Mm -hmm. in that person's eyes. And so when we present a birth plan that is a bunch of checked boxes or, you know, a bunch of pictures without anything else, what would, what we're, we're not communicating through that plan who we are. Mm-hmm. And we're not opening up the possibility of that space for connection. So one thing that I ask my clients that, that I think, and this answer should go on every single birth plan, uh, is what is the key piece of information about you that your team or your doula or your midwife or whoever it is that you're speaking to in this moment, what is the key information about you that they need to know so that they can provide you with the right kind of care, with excellent care? So what is the key information that they need to know about you? So it's important to share what, what is the key piece of information about you that is that you want your provider or your labor and delivery nurse or your doula to know so that they can provide you with excellent care. And, and this might look like a disclosure of trauma. So it might look like I am a survivor of sexual trauma and I'm very afraid of losing control in my birth. You can help me by... Uh, offering me uh, lots of opportunities to consent to my care. So every time, every interaction that you can think of with me where uh, there's a possibility to ask for my consent, then that would be something that that I would be grateful for and would help protect me and keep me safe. Uh, it It might not look like a disclosure of traumas. Not everyone wants to disclose their trauma and that's fine. It might look like a, a disclosure of fear around birth. So it might be, I'm very, I'm holding a lot of fear. I want you to know that I'm holding a lot of fear around this birth. And you can help me by offering more reassurance than you normally would mm-hmm. uh, to, to people. So you can help me, me by, by letting me know that you're, you're keeping track of baby really well because I am holding a lot of fear that that I won't get to meet my baby. Uh, Or it might look like I have a needle phobia and this is the most important thing that I want you to know. And if I need to have an IV or if I need to have some blood taken, here are some things that you could do to help me in this this situation. It might be uh, that you have experienced a loss 
uh, previous pregnancy loss, infant loss, or it might be that you lost your mother a year ago and, and that's the story that you're holding, that your mother will never meet this baby. And right. that's what you want to share with them because then they can help provide you with that compassionate care. Mm -hmm. And so it's these places, it's, it's this piece of communication around what is, what is it that I am holding that I want you to know? Mm -hmm. right? So it's something that I want the, this other person to know about me, but also it's information that is helpful for them in terms of how they should be interacting with yeah. me. And so that's... Um, one thing that I just wish every single person would put, like if you're, if you're using a visual birth plan, if you're, if you're ticking boxes, write it in at the top, right? If there isn't a space for this piece of information, write it in, write in this piece of information, because it really does help to develop that sense of, oh, you are an individual with individual needs. And I can, I can offer you that, that compassionate care. The other thing that I would say that is helpful is to, um, I mean, I do this with my birth plans, but you can also do this in the moment, is, is to use nonviolent communication. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a, a form of communication that is just really helpful for developing that um, sense of connection and, and uh, uh, empathy with from another. And so uh, you can Google it. Uh, there's, there's a book, but also you can kind of get the principles of nonviolent communication just from, from uh, going to their, their website. And basically there, there are four parts, four components to it. So you would make an observation. So the first part is an observation. For example, um, you know, I'm very afraid of birth. <laughs> It's an observation. And then you would describe a, 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 a feeling. And, and my observation kind of was coming into the feeling as well. So these things kind of flow from one to another, but, but a feeling. So, uh, you know, I, um, I'm most afraid of losing control. Mm -hmm. I'm most afraid of losing control. And then a need. I, um, I need to, to feel that uh, I'm the one who's participating in this birth, that I'm, I'm in charge, that I get to make the decisions. And then you would make a request after that. So uh, you might say, um, uh, would you be willing to ask for my consent every time you touch me? Uh, maybe I can change the example a little bit and, and say that in the observation, it might be a disclosure of uh, trauma. So I, I'm a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. I'm very afraid of losing control. I need to, to feel like I'm the one who gets to choose what's happening to my body. Would you be willing to offer me that, um, uh, asking for my consent, the kind of care where you ask for my consent every time you touch my body? And so by using this kind of framework of observation, uh, feeling need, and then a request, what we do is, again, we're, we're we're inviting that connection mm -hmm. from our heart space to somebody else's heart space and, and asking them and, and, and also helping them to understand why. Mm -hmm. uh, we shouldn't always have to disclose trauma. I don't think you need to disclose trauma if you, if you are uh, a survivor. But there is an aspect about just human beings in general where human beings like to understand why something is being asked of them. Uh, and we're more likely to give it 
and more likely to give it in a compassionate way when we understand why. And again, that's why I really recommend communicating what you're holding with your team, with your midwives or with your OB, with your labor and delivery nurse, with your doula. What is it that you're holding? What's the most important thing they need to know? Because again, once they have that piece of information, it really helps them to, un to understand the why, which yeah. makes then the request, any requests that you're making make sense. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people, um, uh, birth professionals, healthcare workers receive requests from people and they're like, this doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. This isn't good care. This isn't something that, you know, is, is, you know, this is out of my, the normal way in which I do things. I, I don't feel comfortable going in this direction. And then they want to push back against it. Yeah. And uh, when they understand why, then they're more likely to go along with any requests that you're making, but they're also more likely to compassionately, compassionately explain why it may not be possible for them to go along with the requests that you're making. Mm -hmm. So both ways, whether they can go along with it or whether they, they can't for whatever reason, you're more likely to receive better care yeah. if they understand why. Yeah. And so really thinking about what is it that they need to know about me so that they understand the why mm -hmm. of the requests that I'm making in my birth makes so much sense because yeah otherwise you could just be seen as somebody who's really just being awkward and controlling and you know mm -hmm. we've got a job to do you know and blah, blah, blah. so I think that's mm -hmm. an amazing tool for people to go in with really really good mm -hmm. and I mean most of the time I'm assuming that the care providers would read your birth plan they have to right they can't just disregard it well, I mean, so certainly it happens. People disregard birth plans. I mean, that's, I mean, I wish it didn't happen. Um, it's not good practice to disregard it. Uh, I do think that birth plans should be used as a tool before your birth. Mm -hmm. So it's something that you should walk in. If you're planning a birth at a hospital with an OB, it's something that you should walk into one of your appointments, holding the plan, okay. sitting down with them and saying, can we read this together? Can you explain to me if there's anything on it that, that is going to be difficult at the hospital mm -hmm. where I'm birthing at? Is there, you know, and it's not just to get there. Okay. Sometimes we, um, uh, people are recommended to bring in a birth plan to their OB so that their OB can okay the plan. Mm -hmm. And and that's, I mean, useful, but then sometimes there's a kind of um, bait and switch that can happen. The OB okays the plan, but then there's no further communication. And then when you get into the labor and birth itself, then, then the people who are actually caring for you, the plan has gone out the window. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a couple of things that you can do there. So one, don't think about it as, as the OB okaying the plan. Thinking about, think about it as a conversation in which you're communicating your needs and, and how you want to be supported. And they're communicating what's possible for them, what's most likely, where you're going to have some challenges, where um, this request may be difficult or where maybe they need to tweak it a bit. Maybe um they you know that this is only possible with certain providers right so actually kind of it's helping you to frame a picture of of what you're walking into yeah right so that's that's one thing and then the, the next piece would be uh particularly for people who are um survivors of trauma and, and who are creating a plan that is uh 
dis- disclosing this to their provider would be to ask that this plan is then communicated with other members of the team ahead mm-hmm. of the birth. Mm-hmm. So what you're getting then is people who have already, hopefully, have already read your plan before yeah. you walk into the hospital. Yeah. Because when you walk into the hospital with a piece of paper, then um, everyone should be reading that ahead of walking into the room with you. But it doesn't necessarily happen. Yeah, I mean, um, and, and so... And so having, getting your OB on your side and, and helping them to, to understand how important it is that these pieces of the plan, even if it's not the whole plan, but these pieces of the plan need to be communicated mm-hmm. ahead of time with the team so that everyone knows what is really important here. Mm-hmm. And again, like that piece of information, like what's the most important thing that they should know about you? It's almost like if they only knew that and knew nothing else about the plan, if they only knew that, they would still be able to give you the care that you needed. Yeah. And just That's... to give us an example of how effective this is, can you tell us about your second birth and how different that was? Because you yeah, so... like this, <laughs> you were far more like, right, this time I'm going to communicate. Yeah. yeah. So with my first birth, I did a lot of preparation. I did a lot of, um, uh, I took two childbirth classes. I hired a doula. I was seeing a therapist. I mean, I, I, I did all the things to prepare for that first birth and I still walked away with trauma. Uh, but one thing that I didn't do is, is I didn't utilize the, the birth plan. Uh, and so I created one and it was very much in the vein of like, I want to, you know, I don't want to have an epidural. I, I, you know, I want to um, refuse the eye ointment for the baby after the birth, right? Like all this kind of stuff. And, and to tell you the truth, it just didn't seem worth bringing it in because I was like, well, I can, I know I don't want an epidural and I'll just say no. Um, And so I can just tell them that Mm -hmm. in the labor. I don't need to to kind of have it with me. Uh, and so we never, I don't know if we did, never printed it out, but it certainly didn't come with us to the hospital and it was, certainly wasn't really talked about ahead of time. Mm-hmm. For my second birth, I went into that experience carrying a lot of fear because I had had my trauma so activated by the first birth experience. And now that first birth was my model for how birth was going to go for me. Mm-hmm. And so I had a lot of fear Uh, But one thing that I did was I I wrote a birth plan in which I was very explicit about who I was, what was important to me, what my history was, and how they could help me have a safe birth experience. Mm -hmm. So uh, I disclosed that I was a a survivor of sexual violence, uh, that I'd had previous birth trauma from my first birth because my consent hadn't been um, uh, respected and facilitated in that experience, and that they could help me by asking for my consent every time they touched me. And so I shared that that um, birth plan with them. I also, so one of the things that had happened with my pre, my first birth was that I had had excruciating pain in my hips between contractions. Mm -hmm. And this was very uh, surprising because you're supposed to 
not have pain between contractions, but for right. a few of us, <laughs> you're less nice to have a break. Um, but for a few of us out there, we experience pain between contractions for whatever reason, my um, hips had gone into spasm and, and didn't relax and didn't release. And so I was also carrying a lot of fear around having another unmedicated birth. Mm-hmm. And I wanted another unmedicated birth because I had done a lot of research and had seen the benefits of it and didn't want the, to, to deal with the associated risks of um, having an epidural. But now I had this fear that I was going to be suffering mm-hmm. in that experience rather than just, you know, managing the contractions. Mm-hmm. So... So the other thing that I did was I had a conversation with the doula that I hired and she helped me put an epidural back into my toolbox. Mm -hmm. So she helped me come to the place where I decided that if I moved into a place of suffering, right, if I moved out of coping and into Mm. a place of suffering, if that pain came back and and I was no longer able to experience my birth in a way that felt good mm-hmm. that I could use an epidural in that instance. I mean, I could use an epidural whenever I wanted to, but, but for me, that was like, yeah. that I, that I would put that piece back into my toolbox. Yeah. And that was really powerful for me because now I was like, Oh, I don't have to experience that again. Mm-hmm. Right. So I had these two, two big changes yeah. in my plan. So, uh, I ended up laboring at home for for most of my labor and I didn't have, I I did some pelvic floor physiotherapy uh, ahead of that birth Mm -hmm. and I was able to keep those hips relaxed during (laughs) my second birth and and did self-massage between contractions and and really focused on releasing where I I hold tension Mm -hmm. uh, in in my body as a result of the the sensation of the contractions to to release that between the contractions so that I could, so I wasn't holding it Mm -hmm. and wasn't experiencing that pain. So that meant that I was coping really well Mm -hmm. with my my second birth Mm -hmm. and I was at home and then I was still planning on birthing at a hospital and then my water broke and I was pushing the next contraction. So I never actually needed to use that tool of the, of an epidural. I I, I ended up having another unmedicated birth, but for me, that's like less important Mm -hmm. than the, the permission that I had given myself to, to, to use a tool if I was suffering. And that was such a powerful piece of the puzzle for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was pushing, we moved very quickly to, to the hospital. I was pushing in the car and the baby was born um, a couple of contractions after we, we arrived at the hospital. <laughs> uh, but what was so noticeable about the way in which I was cared for at the hospital was everyone was very, very respectful, very gentle. Uh, and I was like really taken aback at how much people were, were honoring my autonomy in my space. They were asking That's me for right. permission to put a blood pressure cuff around my arm. And wow. I was like, what is going on here? And then I realized that they had 
read the birth plan. Mm-hmm. Now we, um, I'm sure we brought it in. I don't know if they had time to read it because the birth happened so quickly after mm. we arrived. I don't know if they had time to read it after we arrived at the hospital, but I do know that my midwife had put it into my notes. She had had team meetings about me ahead of time. Wow. Uh, and about my experience. And so the team knew who I was. Mm -hmm. And so that was like a really wonderful experience of good care that I received as a result of the communication that I had provided, but then also had been taken up by my midwife and and disseminated to people uh, because she wasn't the one attending attending the birth. It was someone else. So wonderful. And how far in advance did you do all that? communicating was it a month in advance or a few months um I think I was in my third trimester I, I honestly don't remember when oh, fresh um, then yeah because if it was too yeah. far in advance I guess they'd be like oh, yeah who are you yeah so it's all about mm-hmm. the timing as well but that's so wonderful yeah. it's so nice to hear such a different yeah. experience was had by you really preparing mm-hmm. and being in charge of the experience more and I think that's often something that scares me when I hear women saying no, I haven't really given it much thought. I'll just go in and I'll deal with it on the day. I don't really want to think about the birth. And I'm like, oh, I think you should. Like, I really think you should think about all the different scenarios. And because otherwise it is just a bit down to luck, isn't it? Yeah. So this sounds like a much more empowering right. I mean, I think, experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, the way in which birth has been represented to us culturally is that it is a a physical experience that you just have to get through. And Mm. you can either get through it by suffering and experiencing a lot of pain, or you can get through it by having an epidural and that's just going to solve everything. And both of those, um, both of those options are myths, right? It's, you know, with an epidural, there's still a lot that you have to decide. There's still a lot of information that you need to know, and you're probably still going to experience uh, a lot of sensation before the epidural and also during the epidural because it's um, for various reasons. Uh, usually people are not completely sensationless. No. Right? And often after uh, you really pay after may have been pushing Having more it. than you normally would and then you've got a pelvic floor that isn't quite as yeah like if you can't so see very well. you know but you know either way mm. epidurals don't solve the problem of trauma right. because because trauma again isn't to do with pain mm. right we can experience pain and not feel trauma we can experience the the sensations of of labor and not feel trauma. We can run a marathon. People who run marathons are in extreme amounts of pain Mm -hmm. during that marathon run, but they're not experiencing trauma. They're like happy to be there. I mean, I'm not a marathon runner. I imagine they're happy to be there. So so pain and and suffering are not the same thing. And we can feel isolated, alone, unheard, uh, out of control with an epidural. So Birth isn't just a physical experience that we either have to put up with or we can solve by getting pain relief. That's actually not the the main part or like what I think is the most important ways of thinking about it. Uh, Birth is is an emotional experience. It's an emotional journey. It's uh, a journey that... um, uh, is is physical physiological yes and also emotional spiritual very much and we need to be preparing 
both in terms of like what we know about birth so we can make good decisions. So, okay, like how, how do I make a good decision? A good decision to have an epidural, even though there are risks associated with it. But in this circumstance, it's going to be a good decision for me to go ahead, right? So like, how do we know our options so that we can make good decisions about our birth? And then how am I preparing emotionally and spiritually to, have, to go on this journey? Absolutely. And, and however you birth, whether it's with, uh, uh, through a cesarean, whether it's through uh, an unmedicated birth, whether it's with an epidural, whether it's using um, uh, nitrous oxide, whether, like, however you give birth, you still have to walk that journey. Mm-hmm. You're yeah. still walking this transformative process that uh, we need to have some thought around. Definitely. You know, we need to prepare for, we need to imagine, we need to think about what's going to help me feel safe. Mm. What's going to help me feel safe in my elective cesarean? What's going to help me feel safe and loved and cared for and strong and empowered in my birth with an epidural that I'm planning to get? What's going to help me feel safe in my unmedicated birth with my home birth midwife? These are important questions and it doesn't matter how you're giving birth. We still need to ask those questions because birth, no matter how we do it, is this transformative experience. It is an emotional journey as well as as a physical one. Yeah. And you're never going to avoid that. And it's actually a beautiful thing. It can be a beautiful thing. And like the analogy you were using, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't go into a marathon without doing any preparation. (laughs) So we really need to prepare for going Mm -hmm. into birth. And I agree with you. It really Mm -hmm. isn't just the physical because if it were just that, you know, you could say for 300,000 years, we've been doing it physically. Our bodies are capable in theory of of doing that physical act. I mean, there are some women that do Mm -hmm. in comas even, but it's more about enjoying the experience, you know, Mm -hmm. having a lovely time rather than, yeah, feeling traumatized and violated. Mm -hmm. So Mm-hmm. It does take a lot of emotional preparation. And I think the advice you've given is just amazing. I love it. I think it's going to be massive in changing the whole way that birth space is regarded and giving that kind of advice to caregivers and, mm-hmm. and to the birth givers mm-hmm. themselves. Um, I understand that you give workshops, right, in hospitals as well to care providers and mm-hmm. That's so wonderful. How have you been received? Like, do you approach them or do they approach you or is it a mix of... People in general are really... It's a mix of both. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, um, mostly people are hungry for this information. There's always going to be some people who are resistant, Mm -hmm. but we're talking about small changes. We're not talking about, you know, I'm not a surgeon. I'm not asking people to change how they do surgery. Mm-hmm. I'm not a labor and delivery nurse. I'm not asking them to change how they're going to take blood. Right? Uh, I'm asking them to, to think about their words, to look after themselves so that they're protecting that heart space, uh, to think about eye contact. How can I, and, and to, to think about like, how do I connect consent or ask for consent uh, and how how do we communicate create facilitate communication and 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 when we're doing these three things when we're when we're connecting communicating and asking for consent then we're really um you know we're really 
creating that protective space for someone to give birth wherever they're giving birth, whether it's at home or in, in the hospital or in a birth center. Uh, and, and so it's not big changes that need to take place. It's actually pretty small changes. Yeah. But eye contact. Massive consent. Sitting down, sitting down next to the bed instead of standing over the top of somebody. Yeah. Um, just holding their hands. Making, yeah, anything. It's like, wow. Yeah. Uh, ex- explaining what's happening through an emergency. So if something is, if there is an emergency situation, having somebody who can be, you know, narrating what's going on and explaining why. And not only is that these, these are the things during the experience, but afterwards as well, right? It has such an impact on the rates mm-hmm. of postnatal depression and bonding with the baby and mm-hmm. the relationship you have mm-hmm. with your partner. Like it has such a huge ripple effect if you've had a positive right. birth experience or a negative mm-hmm. one. So it's just so yeah. far reaching. Um, and even I think the yeah. way in which your baby um, is able to conduct itself through life because the baby invariably feels trauma as well if you have. Mm-hmm. And it can make them more anxious and, you know, yeah, it can really mm-hmm. impact them. So it's just huge, isn't it? The, the ripple mm-hmm. effects of planning for it properly and communicating. And, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the baby is not a separate being from the birth giver. So after birth, I think of birth as it's like the beginning of a process of separation that I don't know when it ends, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I've, got a three-year-old right now and so he's like me and I can do this right so he's going through another stage of that separation process I think that there's another one coming up with teenagers where again they push back (laughs) and they're like no I'm a separate human being who has my own you know identity yeah right so so we're parenting is this continual process of of separating from Mm -hmm. the, the the baby that the the was part of us and so birth is just the beginning of that process and so this little being that has come out into the world is not a separate person mm. yet it doesn't experience itself separately from you it doesn't um, know itself as a being with its own identity right like that's something again like three-year-old is like as we're really <coughs> discovering that yeah. concept of me um, and, and so ba- how do babies feel good in the world? They feel good because they are in a, they're in a, in a relationship <coughs> with uh, their primary caregivers, but particularly immediately after birth, most often with the birth giver, whose body, smell, heart rate, breath, voice is their world and is still part of them. Uh, and so how that person is, how that birth giver is in themselves and experiencing themselves is, is impacting the baby's sense of self and the baby's sense of okayness in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and we uh, protect our babies and their own emotional experiences, and we help them to continue that process of separation through co-regulating, through offering them that space of safety, which is on our body. We like our body is their world at this point. Their world is pretty small, right? They, they, the womb was the world. Now they come out, they come onto the chest. This is now their world. And, and, you know, 
the even just the the room itself is too big for them to conceptualize. They haven't got there yet. Their their eyesight isn't good enough yet to to even be able to see it properly. So that their world is us, and we are to some extent still them. Mm-hmm. And so how we are in ourselves, how we're experiencing ourselves, have we experienced trauma? Are we very anxious? Like if we're anxious, the baby's going to be anxious. If we're distressed, the baby's going to be distressed. Uh, sometimes what's really helpful is particularly people who've experienced trauma or going through a difficult time, or you're just going through the baby blues right now. And it's like, you're feeling overwhelmed and crying and anxious. Um, one thing that's really helpful to do is to talk to your baby and know that what you as the parent are experiencing, it's different from them, right? So like, you know, mommy's really sad or daddy's really sad right now. Like I'm grieving or I'm overwhelmed because I'm going through the baby blues or I'm, you know, I, I had a hard birth or whatever it is, right? I had these experiences and these experiences don't belong to you. Mm-hmm. And so helping to, to continue to facilitate that that little bit of separation mm-hmm. uh, can be really powerful and helpful. Yeah. While still obviously offering yeah. that space yes. of I am yeah. the world. Yeah. Yeah. To the baby. Wow. That's amazing. It's so beautifully put. I love the way you put that, that you are their world still. And it's so true. And mm-hmm. so that's why I've never mm-hmm. really understood our parents' generation when it was like straight off, you know, you go into a different room in a nursery, we'll feed you every four hours on the clock. It's like, what? If that's not traumatizing for a baby, what is? It's just like, wow. Um, yeah, I think we're so much more conscious now than our parents' generation, at least. Mm-hmm. I think our grandparents were more aware of yeah. those things. But, oh, well, thank you so, mm-hmm. so much for imparting all that knowledge and for your time. I know you're really busy and the work you do, I think, is just amazing. And I think it's really, really going to help. How do you feel about what you're doing do you think it's going to change the the way birth is regarded little by little like um, the same I mean it's exciting because I'm sorry before we recorded yeah. we were talking about um your Facebook group's been around for 18 months and you had more than 600 people join mm-hmm. this time I mean it's doing so well yeah yeah so so we have have over 4000 people I think we have 4300 in the group wow. and we had for the recent training 600 people join just for the the recent training that we wow. offered uh in that community and yeah it's exciting I mean I would say that you have to have unrealistic ideal goals in order to make change in the world yeah. so I am um excited by the goal of making trauma-informed care the the standard of care for every single birth giver and I think that um you know it's it's idealistic and and at the same time um there is a huge part of me probably over 50 percent that believes it's possible and so uh that really motivates me to kind of to do this work and and to to provide that education to providers and to support parents and it's um it's just you know you have to have that that goal that that motivates you and pulls you pushes you to reach beyond what you thought would be possible yeah because that's where real change happens so it's exciting it's very exciting and so how do people 
contact you? Should I just leave your details below about resilient birth? And also, um, who do they have to be to contact you? Would you be able to do a one-on-one session with them? Is it more a course framework that you're working towards? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Financially, do they have to contribute a lot? Like, how? What? What are your offerings? Sure. So uh, I teach childbirth education classes. So that's one way of um, coming into my world if you're giving birth and and those classes happen every few months. Um, The best way to find out about those would be to go to my, they're online via Zoom. Um, The best way to go to those would be uh, www.resilientbirth.com. That's my website. Uh, and the other way you can work with me is through this birth support planning. This is kind of private one-on-one work again via Zoom if you're pregnant and preparing for birth. And this is for people who have either a history of trauma or just a lot of anxiety mm-hmm. about uh, childbirth, about this upcoming birth that, that you're planning for. And so we would meet one-on-one via Zoom. Again, you can find out about that through the website, but you could also email me uh, at info at resilientbirth.com and just reach out and get in touch. And then if you are a midwife, doula, labor and delivery nurse, birth professional, uh, watching or not watching, listening to this, podcast then uh, the best way to this book group which is the trauma-informed parent mm-hmm. natal professionals facebook group and the best way to do that group great oh well thank you i'm sure you have it is growing in popularity more and more oh and you asked about pricing as well i work on a sliding scale Oh, brilliant. Oh, that's one. Yeah. No, so, yeah. yeah. So the, the other piece about pricing is that I, I grow on a, uh, I, I work on a sliding scale. And so. Um, mm-hmm. Accessible to everybody. Basically. I try to make it accessible yeah. to, to everyone. Yeah, that's really wonderful. That's so beautiful. Wow. Well, thank mm-hmm. you for everything that you're doing. I'm so inspired by you. I think it's absolutely incredible. Um, we need you in Costa Rica as well. That's for sure. <laughs> but bit by bit. We'll get there. Um, so, so much. Yeah, thank um, you. It's an honor to be here. A real honor. And um, yeah, I will um, send you the podcast link as soon as we air it. Awesome. Thank you, Justine. Thanks thank for you. you do. Take care.